Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me as always to celebrate Halloween and get his trick-or-treat candy out and gobble candy corn is Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you as we approach All Hallows' Eve? Well, as you may know, this is the Gay High Holy Days. I'm quite excited about uh, all that will be happening. I'm quite excited about the mood. Fun fact, um, I never change my solitaire... uh, background design throughout the year it's just it's always halloween for me so just thought i would share that with everyone it's the best way to play solitaire highly recommend i didn't know you were a solitaire enthusiast oh yeah yes i i absolutely spend too much time trying to wind down at the end of my day um with a little bit of solitaire. Sometimes it's word games of various kinds, um, but solitaire, if I really want to turn my brain off in a certain way, it's it's better, I have just found. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So you just keep it set on Halloween mode, spooky mode all year, just in anticipation. Yeah. Exactly. That's, like this, that's beautiful. Great. Yeah. Well, the way we are celebrating Halloween this year, I mean, like, it's like that ministry song. It's Halloween every day of the year here in some ways, but like the way we're especially celebrating it is through watching a movie, which we do fairly regularly, but like this is a special super Halloweeny movie. It's called The City of the Dead. It's from 1960. This is Whitewood, Massachusetts. A young girl, a stranger, has come to Whitewood to do research. She has come she thinks to study. Leave Whitewood. Leave Whitewood tonight. I beg of you. What power? Leave before it is too late. In spite of this warning, the girl lingers on. Like the last movie, if you don't count the Dr. Faustus movie, like the last movie, it stars your man and mine, Christopher Lee, the king. So that's great. 1960, directed by John Llewellyn Moxie. The writer is this guy, George Baxt, who apparently created an iconic gay private detective, Pharaoh Love. Pharaoh Love is the name of the black gay detective that George Baxt created. So, yeah, he's apparently kind of an iconic figure. Uh, starring, as I've mentioned already, Christopher Lee, but also Venetia Stevenson, who has, we'll get into the, an amazing haircut. She just passed away September 26th, so rest in peace. Uh, she's incredible in this film. And so, yeah, those are the two main stars. This is a British production, and something that I found interesting, and I'd, I'll love your perspective on this, I haven't seen very many british films set in america and really dealing with americana people do the brits and the americans sort of stay in their own lane especially when it comes to like this sort of mythological sort of stories about their countries because this is this movie is set in new england it's set in massachusetts it's not set in salem it's a movie about witches but it's set in the fictional whitewood massachusetts but yeah what do you think do you, have you seen, you, you watch, you consume more British media than I do. Like, do they do America much? Um, no. What they do in my favorite genre, which is, of course, mystery, uh, what they like to do is have an American character for color, um, which is always funny, often played by a Brit, often with a terrible accent. Well, that pattern holds here. I will say Christopher Lee does a really good job, I think, with an American accent. He really kills it. The two characters who represent the forces of patriarchy in the film, another scientist, another professor, and the the fiancé of the first female protagonist, about more later, those two guys can't do it they just can't like it's amazing no, they just they no. can't and you know, we, you know it's hard it's hard but you know what i'm not a professional actor so whatever um 
<laughs> the other thing, so yeah, the other thing that you see the, the sort of carryover, I think, to the present day, they can't really do the American accent. Again, I'm, I'm slamming Great British Bake Off for two, two, two episodes in a row here. They can't really do the food either. Man, they try to make pizza or bagels. Like, oh my gosh. just or They start talking shit about pies. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, like, no one wants get, to hear that. Know. It was a great show, and then they went and ruined it. Um, in Jump the shark. Ways. Jump yeah. the shark. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, so I'm going to run through the plot of this really quickly with the help of uh, a website that need not be named. So the plot is basically, it starts off in 1692 in Whitewood, Massachusetts. A witch named Elizabeth Selwyn is burned at the stake. She has help with this other Puritan there, Jethro Keane. And Jethro prays for Lucifer to come and preserve her from being burned at the stake. In the midst of the burning, the fire is is temporarily put out by the rainstorm. And Elizabeth proclaims that she's going to curse the town and haunt it, basically. That she's going to basically... Uh, be the tool of the devil in providing yearly virgin human sacrifices on the hour of the 13th during Candlemas Eve in February and the Witch's Sabbath or Valpurgisnacht uh, on April 30th. So cut to the present day. We're in a university seminar, unnamed university. I'm surprised it's not uh, Miskatonic University because I think there's a lot of connections to um, H.P. Lovecraft and Miskatonic is the fictional university that that Lovecraft sets in, in New England. The professor, history professor, Alan Driscoll, played by Christopher Lee, is doing a lecture on witchcraft. He is, he, we sort of cut to him chanting, burn, witch, burn, which is what the, the, the village people were saying in the 16th century or the 17th century. That's also a key line in this other jo- George Baxt movie. Sorry, one second. Night of the Eagle which was released in the United States as Burn Witch Burn. So he was, <laughs> he was free with uh, wow. lending lines and ideas from, from different things, but whatever, I don't care. Um, so yeah, so we're in this history lesson, and this, it's like a seminar. And to me, this seemed like such an English-style seminar. Like they're in they're like in armchairs. There's no, it's, it's very much like, looks like his office or something. Like you know, the sort of uh, the tutorial model versus the lecture or like seminar room model. It seemed very British to me too. Anyway, so Nan Barlow is the devoted student played by Venetia Stevenson, rest in peace, is like Christopher Lee's like star pupil. And she, she, her fiance is also in the class. And this guy looks like Biff from Back to the Future, this dude. <laughs> Same haircut, yeah, same vibe. yeah. Yeah, 1950s, whatever. And he's like, this is all bullshit. She's super into it. She has the spirit of historian, and she wants to figure out what's going on. And Professor Alan Driscoll, Christopher Lee's like, well, I know a place you can go find some primary sources to get your final paper in order. He sends her along to Whitewood. He recommends a hotel, the Raven's Inn. So she, she rides there. She encounters a kind of ghostly hitchhiker on the road to Whitewood who looks suspiciously like Jethro Keane. <laughs> yeah, we well, get to the haircut, the... though. So that's yeah, really a, and, a yeah. huge shift. Yeah, yeah. He's like, what's your mission in Whitewood? <laughs> um, he's, he, 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 sort of, he sort of has a funny, like, supposed to be sort of puritanical way of speaking, I guess. Yeah. So she gets to the Ravens Inn. The innkeeper, whose name is Mrs. Newless. Uh, and spoilers, that's Selwyn spelled backwards. <laughs> um, Mrs. Newless looks suspiciously like Elizabeth Selwyn. We find out later that it's because she is Elizabeth Selwyn. any case, Nan is exploring the area. It is very close to Candlemas Eve, which is, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, that's February 1st? Yeah, so Candlemas Eve is February 1st, and this is one of the high holy days of the witches. And so it just happens that Professor Driscoll sent her there on this this holiday. I know, amazing, amazing coincidence. So she's exploring town. She's getting like dirty looks from uh, spinster ladies who are wandering the streets together, like just you know doing you know the, the the streets are like a wash in dry ice. There's like amazing like the graveyard just seems to border every structure in the town, 
there's a blind pastor defending an unattended church, really you know, laying it on a little thick with blind pastor, I guess for the, for the metaphor, but whatever. He, I guess it's ironic. He, he's, he's right. He's like this, you have to get out of here. This town is dominated by the devil, etc. She doesn't listen. And she basically gets sacrificed by the witch's coven who's hanging out in the hotel. One of my favorite parts is actually when she goes to the church and knocks on the door and the guys and and she's curious about what's going on and the pastor of the church says you know um this is still a church as long as i'm still alive this is still a house of worship he says which felt a little like hit a little too close to home with mainline christianity kind of oh dying yeah, out. yeah and it was like yeah, yeah, i totally. might have sent that to a couple of friends but anyway yeah that's 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 fair we should watch um first reform sometime that's to get really the the dying out mainline you know what i'm talking about the ethan hawk movie oh Mm -hmm. man we'll we'll, we'll talk we'll talk about later but in any case she encounters this pastor she encounters his daughter patricia russell who runs a local antique shop and she borrows a treatise on witchcraft from her and then and then she's she's like exploring the hotel and gets like snatched up by these witches who are dressed like monks, I would say they, they sort of look, they look a lot like sort of um, like gray friars or some of brown, you know, people like wearing like their, their habits and cloaks. and Well, Klaus, as you, as you may remember, sometimes it's best to just have the devil dress up as a friar. So it all kind yeah. of works out in the end. Uh, I know that was a question. Episode, it was a question I didn't, I didn't get to ask last episode because they have the devil appear as a Franciscan. And in the 16th century, 17th century, I'm like, man, funny it's not a Jesuit. Like, in terms of pe- what people, like, really were paranoid about. But in any case, whatever. What, we'll, we'll let that slide for right now. Yeah, but they look like Franciscan monks, these witches. They sacrifice her on the 13th hour. And big surprise twist, the reason and the reason that Nan got set up to go to this death-dealing witch town was because the history professor, Alan Driscoll, himself was a member of this coven and basically was leading her to the slaughter. Oh, okay. I know a town you can go to. It's called Whitewood. I'm definitely not from there and don't participate in satanic rituals with other witches there. That would be weird. I definitely don't have a tombstone there mm-hmm. for me no. mm-hmm. that says I was burnt as a witch myself. No. That, that didn't happen. So you should just go. And then her fiance, Biff, or Bill as it is, and her brother... Mr. Dick Barlow. Dick Barlow does not get along with Alan Driscoll, the history professor. And this is something we'll develop a little bit later. But they have, there's like sort of a debate about like the merits of actually studying past religions and past supernatural phenomena. Dick, Dick Barlow is a scientist. He likes to watch the bacteria squirm and fight on the slide. He's into things that he can touch and smell. Of course, he can't really touch or see the bacteria with your naked eye, but whatever. In any case, they try to find out what happened to Nan. She's gone, but they do start to interact with Patricia, who was one of the last people to see Nan alive. In any case, just to sort of break this down so we don't have to go through every one of the tedious details of the film, which I will say it's, it is like some of the some of the motion of the plot is a little clunky, but I it's the movie's seventy eight minutes long, so it kind of doesn't matter. It, it still it moves at a good clip. In any case, Dick Barlow sort of starts to take a fancy to Patricia. He goes to the Ravens in himself. He's trying to figure out what's going on. Patricia gets abducted. She's going to be the next virgin sacrificed on what is now Valpurgis Noct or the Witch's Sabbath. And Biff and Dick have to save the day. And that's, that's basically the plot in a nutshell. Before we get into... A new experimental format we're trying for for the show um, in which we nail 95 theses to the church doors of the church in Whitewood. Um, Just what was your basic reaction to this film? Like, did you enjoy it? You know, I I just I send you these films and like watch, you know, like make of this what you will. Uh, I hope I hope hope you enjoy them. I hope other people enjoy them. But yeah, did you like it? What did you think of it? Oh, I was a huge fan. It was really fun. Um, You know, you always have to get used to a different pacing when you're looking at especially a movie from 1960 but like you said I feel it moves through really well we have a sort of a very eye-catching protagonist who 
leads us on these adventures. I like the way that she has the spirit of scientific inquiry, but also takes a totally different tack than the professor that has sort of led her to the water, rather than, as we pointed out, the kind of uh, being interested in the historical context um, and sort of the condition, the conditions in which stories of witchcraft arise, as her professor seems to be at the beginning of the film, Nan is interested in finding out, well, but what's real? Did witchcraft really happen? Were witches actually powerful? Yes. Yeah. That I And that's that sort of feeds into some of our theses. But yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And like, there is a lot going on there that I think is is interesting. So maybe we'll we can talk about that a little bit. I was wondering um, about the kind of the way time is discussed and seasons in relationship to witchcraft. This idea first of the witch's Sabbath, which I'm familiar with, but I'm not familiar with when it happens during the year. I didn't know if it had a fixed calendar uh, in the same way that Candlemas Eve does. I was also not aware that Candlemas Eve had any uh, sort of satanic connotation. Um, it's Candlemas is the end of the sort of long Christmas epiphany season. Um, so if you want to keep your Christmas tree up as long as possible, I just go to Epiphany, but my friend Tom is really into keeping it up all the way to till Candlemas, so that's a thing. Um, but I'm not sure why that would be a particularly auspicious time to, you know, sacrifice virgins and whatnot. Did you yeah, have any the, insight on that, Klaus? Did you, did you have you sadly sadly not? I don't. Right. Um, but you know, maybe people like they're bored with their Christmas presents and they need a new toy. That's, that that's makes my... a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I'm I'm here for that thesis. We can nail that one to the tree as well. So yeah, the, to the door, as it were. Yeah. So maybe we'll get into thesis number one. So the first thesis I want to offer is that in addition to good versus evil, we have a battle in this film between humanistic interpretation and historical interpretation, as offered by Christopher Lee's history professor character Alan Driscoll. His enthusiastic student, Nan Barlow. And these are contrasted with scientific positivism. Bill, the Biffy fiance, and Dick, Nan's brother, who's a professor of biology at the unnamed university. And who inexplicably has like a 1920s sort of cadence to his voice. His American accent, I find very entertaining. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, well, it's barely, I can only it's see things there. underneath the microscope, and it's very Hollywood and early Hollywood kind of a vibe. Yeah, well, it's, it's like the it's like almost like the transatlantic accent, right? It's like the yeah, it's sort of the, yeah. I think that's what he's trying to do. Um, but yeah, we have this the one of the I think one of the best parts of the movie is this war between humanistic interpretation. We're looking at the past. We're taking seriously other cultures and other ways of thinking about things at time. Versus the idea that, like, okay, well, you're just studying a lot of bullshit. A lot of stuff that, that was just dumb. Like, those witches didn't exist. And I, I was struck by that contrast. And, like, of course, we are on the humanity side. <laughs> Though we do believe in science. Science is real. Science is Love real. Love is real. You know, Get vaccinated. The, you know, like, the, <laughs> the we have those signs, the, the liberal signs in front of our houses about, you know, everything. But um, this in this house, in this home... <laughs> In this home, witches are real. In this um, home, witches are real, unicorns are cool, and yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So we're on the we're on the humanity side, even though we do think science science is again whatever. Saying like I believe in science is itself like kind of ridiculous because science is a method, not a creed, whatever. Anyway. Um anyway, uh we're on that side. We're on the humanity side. And like this idea that these like these bros who are like oh, well, like, we study what's real and useful now and all that stuff in the past is bullshit. Of course we're going to side with the prof the history professor and his student because she's got the best hair in the world. But, you know, it's a little complicated by the fact that he himself turns out to be a member of the coven and his whole passion for, like, humanistic research is, like, all a cover for getting this young woman killed. Well, so it's what not you actually that complicated, Klaus, because we're also both secret witches. And so, oops, I guess I let the cat out of the bag. Uh, happy Halloween, everyone. Yeah, I mean, like, that's what that's what the right wing says higher ed is now. It's like it's right. like basically indoctrination and, uh, you know, grooming. You know, it's anyway, right. And, it's and, the, <laughs> and on the other side, I think that 
uh, liberals like ourselves often refer to uh, the kind of search within higher ed for folks like us as a witch hunt. So it all kind of tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what did you think about this war between positivism and humanities research as it played out in the film? I thought it was, I liked the turn that it seemed to take that you've already pointed to so that in the beginning, I bought it hook, line and sinker. Christopher Lee sold me that he was the enthusiastic history professor who wanted to um, focus on the hunt for witches, focus on that fervor that got built up for a, a kind of obvious social critique of what might be happening. You know, it's, it is 1960 in the United States. I'm not as aware of what British pop politics were like at the time, but McCarthyism, et cetera, um, looking for ways to transpose. Um, and, oh, wow. Okay. Looking back, um, my brain is not going to move fast enough, Klaus, but. That's okay. We can edit. <laughs> the play about witches um, in New England that gets oh, the mid-century. The Crucible? The Crucible. So I think there's, I need to look up when the Crucible. 1953, Arthur Miller. Yeah. So I think American, uh, sort of, the American public is already used to transposing contemporary politics back into New England and the, the hunt for witches. Um, so I think we're open to that idea. Um, we've been primed a little bit for this, uh, this way of, of thinking about the present through the past. And I think that's really exciting with, um, with our protagonist at the beginning of the film, the turn where he ends up being a, a witch himself and connected to Whitewood to me becomes more effective. Um, it becomes interesting because I, I am, was not immediately like, Oh, this is an interesting debate. I think because I've heard this versions of this before, like, oh, well, you can't observe it, scientific positivism, therefore you shouldn't study it. I'm sort of not particularly drawn to, that as an intriguing debate. Um, and so the right. twist became interesting for me. What about you? Well, it seems like what's interesting to me about it is that Christopher Lee being a witch, like kind of proves the humanity's point. If, if, I, if, like, if that's what I'm hearing you're saying, like that the fact that he is a witch shows that like it's actually is important to to know about the past. Of course, the way you're supposed to know about it via the film is in a kind of paranoid like study the past so you can defeat your enemies in the present kind of right, way. Right. But yeah, but yeah, it kind of does prove the point. The thing that there's a funny there's a funny part where he is debating with Nan's brother Dick, the scientist, and Christopher Lee produces what he makes us believe is a quotation. The basis of fairy tales is reality. The basis of reality is fairy tales. And he's like, if you were a scientist, you'll know you the origin of that quote. You would be familiar with that quote. I was like, the best part of the movie. <laughs> what is he talking about? And, uh, I mean, Googling the quote, all I could find was Christopher Lee. So It's, it's, um, not, a, it's not a thing. It's definitely not a thing. It reminded me of some early study of religion canonical or formally canonical materials because a lot of the early study of religion was trying to figure out like how religious practices and beliefs related to modernity and science. And so you can see like uh, Fraser's golden bow, like the like, sort of trying to figure out the connections and the, the overlap between science and magic and religion and myth as one idea. You could see Durkheim's idea that like religious stories and symbols, especially symbols and practices, structure society in fundamental ways. And so I was, try I was trying to figure out like, what does he mean by telling, when he responds to the positivist and he's like, well, maybe you, you want to call these, this history of, of witchcraft I'm studying a fairy tale, but like fairy tale is the basis of reality. What did you think that meant? What, what was the point he was trying to make there? I... I was afraid after the after I watched the whole film that all he was really gesturing toward is I can't tell you this but I'm secretly a witch and this actually matters because um, in a way that is observable in a way that you would actually condone because you can come watch me be a witch and in fact Dick presses him further and says have you ever met a witch um, and then wants his sister to bring back an autograph um, from a witch um, so this is all so this is all dick tempting together. fate 
he's mm-hmm. tempted fate and that in he got his dead sister yeah there's, exactly. there's like sort of like a be careful what you wish for buddy yeah. yeah and like christopher lee's like maybe i've met one <laughs> you know um yeah right well, as to whether he was there was supposed to be a, a more uh sustainable argument that could be gestured toward with this quote i i'm afraid i remain unconvinced um that there was substance behind that in, in that sense in the sense of this debate around sort of science versus humanities and that uh, different lenses for studying um, the same object. The basis of fairy tales is reality. That I think could be sustained. The basis of reality is fairy tales. I think he would have needed to say more about what he meant by that for us to take that seriously as a kind of within the bounds of not revealing that he himself is a witch, having that make sense. I I couldn't, I, I think we needed more to get to Fraser Durkheim or anything else. Yeah, when the idea that it was supposed to be like a recognizable illusion was was funny. And I guess I don't really find the debate interesting per se as like a serious intellectual debate. I find it interesting rhetorically that it's being positioned in the film this way and like it's 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 being represented as as somehow important. And ultimately I find like the distinction between the positive sciences and the humanistic sciences or soft sciences to be erased in this film. They end up being the same thing. Like, like, like the, you know, the past is the present, like the the witches are there killing your sister, you know, like that's just what it is. Um, It's very empirical. Did you feel that knife going between your ribs? You know, like that that was, we could record that. So in fact, the film did. So yeah. Yeah. The film itself is, is the synthesis of humanistic endeavor and positivistic, uh, you know, registering sense data or whatever. Another interesting sort of scholarly academic story happening or we'll just say intellectual story happening is a kind of slippage that happens because in the beginning of, of uh, Driscoll's lecture, he's like saying like, okay, I'm, we're studying the hysteria around riches. We're studying the persecution. He's doing like, you know, a kind of history in the way that we were trained to, where you like looking at this as a social phenomenon and a cultural phenomenon. His student is like, yeah, but I want to figure out if the witches were real. And he isn't, that's not his claim in the lectures. His claims are like, this is the violence that was done to these people in the name of of, of, witch, of, of witch hunting. And I get this too. I mean, I teach materials on the witches, uh, on witch hunts. And sometimes my students will just be like, but, are, but were they really witches, right? I, I've had that question just put to me. And, and I, I found that slippage to be like really suggestive of like why studying religion's interesting. Because like you want to know like what's documented, what's what what the historical record will tell you, but there's also like a kind of like reality or like or like you know sort of something like that goes beyond that that also draws people to this. And so I found like the fact that they sort of are slipping between these like really interesting. Yeah, I wonder about the. The, the question your student posed to you, Klaus, um, did they understand themselves and whether that student wanted to know, did they, did magic really exist on the one hand or, which is a question that I think drives a lot of students to the study of witchcraft, um, to the study of certain kinds of religion, or did these people understand themselves to be practicing magic or um, engaged in witchcraft, which is, I think, a hard one to answer using um, the tools of humanities and the social sciences, but at least maybe somewhat occasionally possible to gesture toward. Whereas that ultimate, that first question, uh, what were they doing? Did something transcendental happen? Just not really accessible. Um, and it's a weird place where we can mirror um, the hard the, the hard sciences by saying it's not observable. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, what you, what you can observe is that the confessions that the witches made were like stereotyped and coerced that they were we, we know that they were tortured Easy. we know yeah. that mm-hmm. if you read the co- the confessions without context you're like oh wow this is crazy like you couldn't make this up it's so crazy and then you realize these are all stock and generic like that everyone knew what to say and right. that the confessors were feeding you the lines that you had to say you just had to sign on the, on the you know they wanted you to make it your own through providing your own details but like it, even though they seem so crazy to us and extreme, like 
they, there was a repertoire and people understood that and they understood that that was the way to make the pain stop. And, and that's, you know, so Plus, anyway. didn't you sign uh, Pact with the Devil um, and consort with him on the night of the 14th? Man, you were trying to get, like, some neo-Nazis to show up to my college and, like, kill me or something. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. That would make these podcasts a lot more boring. Please don't do that, neo-Nazis. <laughs> I really want to keep class around. Thank you so much. Um... <laughs> references the occasional references to voodoo so again in the same conversation with dick he uh when he says well have you ever met a real witch um do you think that a woman with a doll and a pin in new orleans new orleans <laughs> yeah can you know injure someone in a different city and um and his response is something like well you know voodoo practitioners would say so you know or something like that right um, Right. So, which yeah. is a which is like a study of religion kind of answer in a certain way, and what I find interesting is that he, you know, there's a a difference between his initial presentation of the facts and Nan's desire for like the really real heart of the phenomenon, and then when this skeptic shows up in the form of her brother, he starts talking like his his over enthusiastic student, and he's like, no, this is there is a reality there because it's part of like the question of like, well, why study this stuff, mm-hmm. like okay, like, why do we, why do you need to be a scholar of religion? Like, why don't we just have historians? Because scholars of religion are, like, more attentive to the complexity of these phenomena and the way people experience them and are not just concerned with writing them off as, like, oh, those are the stupidities of the past. And I'm not saying most academic historians are that either, but um, I guess there were periods. But, uh, yeah, so the his, like, right, there's all these gestures towards the primitive quote-unquote primitive these like sort of random seemingly primitivist masks on the wall the references to voodoo like again we're sort of getting the racialization of 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 religion through that even though you know there no one of color appears in this film as far as i can tell um there is still being like referenced and indexed in that way and it's linking the primitive of whatever primitive society these made-up masks are supposed to be of to the primitive mythological backstory of Americana. And, and I think that's, that's, that's interesting. And I'm not sure they would have done that in an American production about America's, <laughs> America's mythology. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought, um, so much of that, uh, goes unsaid, right? We're meant to draw these inferences, you know, what's the relationship between voodoo in new Orleans and the masks on the wall and witchcraft it's not really worked out precisely enough. To me, it raised the specter of early social science, actually, uh, which we don't get any um, hints of in any other way. It's just sort of atmospheric there that, oh yeah, he also knows about magic and ritual from other cultures. We're supposed to infer that. And that's where that sort of ends. He's like a historian and an ethnologist. Um, Okay, well, I want to move on to the next really important thing which is yes, yes. Nan's Nan's haircut. I want you like so. My thesis was that Nan's haircut is a cultural heritage treasure, and that this was that, that she has to go. How would you describe this haircut that Venetia yeah. Stevenson gets? Like, it's short, but like there's a lot of layers. It, it must have been a lot of product. I don't know. It's a it's a pre beehive is what I would say. It's on its way. It's ascending into 
um, what would become in the next decade a beehive. So there is a part down the back. I don't know if you noticed that. Yes, part. yes. Yeah, that's yeah. very important. A line right down the center of the back yeah. of her head um, where the hair has a kind of, yeah, a, um, a parting. And then at the top, it's sort of um, flatter than a beehive with sort of long bangs um, that all sort of... Uh, radiate out from a single point that's sort of near the top front of the head and it's it's platinum blonde she's platinum yeah and that's really important shows up great in black and white so yeah. Yeah. but you are just she it gives off this aura of i'm a conscientious person this hairstyle takes work and lots of hairspray it's very flammable this hairstyle um which is important. which is it's, which is dangerous because these witches are like staring into fires longingly throughout this film so yeah. exactly so you want to be careful with flammable hairstyles in a movie about witches but she just boldly wears it she seems to draw the attention of everyone she runs into and it's i mean she's drop dead gorgeous in any era so there's that but the hair really kind of puts a spotlight on her i feel so when she is adventuring, so from the university setting where her brother, her boyfriend, the professor, everyone seems to be paying attention to her, to when she's driving through the uh, artificial smoke-filled streets of New England, which definitely gave me, brought back memories of uh, gay nightclubs in the greater Boston area with way too much smoke. I can still smell it. I can still smell it when I look at this film. Um and she's, you know, picking up a hitchhiker. Always a great idea in a horror movie. Definitely pick up yeah. uh, hitchhikers who are from the 17th century. Just definitely, what could go wrong there? Uh, to showing up in the town. Um, whether the reaction is, is to embrace her or to push her away, you just always get a reaction. And I feel like the haircut is the center of that. Yeah, I, I I think your description of it was was totally brilliant. I really I really appreciated that. Like you got the detail, and I think you're right. The idea that it, in the black and white it looks like a spotlight is really a really cool idea, and I think that that's that's right on. And yeah, she's got style. For me, like there's maybe like sort of a Smith College sort of vibe to her presentation. It's like it's like very fetching, but like probably was a little bit edgy, but like but really well put together like so she didn't she wasn't like countercultural in the sense that like she looked like a beatnik or a hippie or something but she there's a kind of uh sophistication that is challenging a more mainstream gender presentation i would say but it's but 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 then it's still extremely feminized um so yeah i think that's 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 all interesting Okay, so yeah, wanted to wanted to register that because I think it's it's really important. We mentioned the fire, so I love it. Like so, because the the witch um, Selwyn and Jethro are just hanging out at the Ravens Inn. Um, you know, Newless is running it as the as the innkeeper, and they sort of just hang out and they're like waiting, anticipating the witch's Sabbath or Candlemas Eve, and they're just staring into the fire, and the fire is like blazing. And it seemed to be really like they couldn't get past the primal scene of the the execution by burning. Another subthesis of mine is that David Lynch borrows this imagery in Twin Peaks along with like the crazy jazzy soundtrack, the score of the film. Like I think like there's a kind of like slapstick flamboyance to it, the movie at moments that I think it gets Lynch kind of appropriates. Um, so that's that's just a that's a small maybe inside baseball kind of yeah, kind of point. There were there were moments in the soundtrack where I couldn't tell if it was a human voice or a theremin, or I really was not at all sure what was making that, that eerie, super high, interesting, uh, alluring kind of a, a theme. Did we, did we return to the same theme way too many times? Could we have used a little more development in the musical ideas? I'm going to say yes. It was, it was a bit much um, in terms of repetition, but... It was interesting. Uh, it was super atmospheric. And I know that you're all listening to this podcast to get your Halloween vibe on. So go watch this movie. Um, it will it will help put you in the right frame of mind. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I watched it on Canopy, but you can actually watch it for free on YouTube, which I did for the second time. So there you have it. Or there's some subscription on Amazon. Anyway, next thesis. I, I don't know if you're a connoisseur of this author or not. But 
My thesis for the fourth thesis is that a major influence on this story is an H.P. Lovecraft novella short story called The Shadow Over Innsmouth from 1936. It's not about witches per se, but it's about a New England town that makes a pact with the a sort of subterranean undersea ancient amphibian race and like creates a religion with them and the the amphibian like deep ones or old or the old ones or whatever they're called like crossbreed with the humans and create like generations of of like uh these fish people and then the it turns out the narrator is one of their descendants and himself is turning into a fish person have you read have you read this no that sounds incredible it's worth a read i mean H.P. Lovecraft, I mean, I guess people saw Lovecraft Country on HBO when it came out like two years ago or whatever. Um, really influential figure and an author. Was really into race science and eugenics and stuff like that. Um, so like there's like weird anti-Semitism and there's like a lot of the way he describes like races like the inhabitants of Innsmouth. Is, there's a racialized like sort of like, oh, there's crossbreeding and like this sort of like idea of racial purity seems to be animating his ideas of how evils are presented but in any case like this idea of like a whole city falling under the sway of the forces of evil through uh, choices that key figures in the city made in the past um to me like really connected it to that that tradition even though lovecraft's like a little bit more creative like he has this whole strange cosmology and mythos around these different alien species that are terrorizing earth um, in this movie, it's, it's like, you know, straight up kind of Americana folklore, witchcraft stuff. So it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more accessible. And so the iconography is a little bit more legible. He's like, oh, we have spooky, you know, graveyards or whatever. Um, but I saw that, that sort of theme of like the, the sins of the father kind of, you know, this, the, a city being cursed, a cursed, a cursed place, like really carrying through. And so I just wanted to register that. Yeah. And the curse comes about through the invocation of the devil in the beginning of the film during the um the burning during during the burning of the witch but it, it fires back on the town in a way that suggests a kind of um that the town is at fault for its witch hunt or i wonder if that's huh, part yeah. of what's happening there um thinking about you know <laughs> american forms of christianity and guilt um and and the the constant search of the self for fault as part of the endeavor, particularly in the inheritance of the Puritans for achieving salvation, that's that self searching. I wonder if there's a communal sin that's sin of some sort from the perspective, at least of the professor at the beginning of the film, before we find out that he himself is a witch um, that might've brought all this curse about on the town. Um, and you also see that in the deep horror of all of the, uh, the New Englanders in this historical scene who say, oh, she's cursed. It's a curse. She's cursing us. Um, and the kind of yeah. overly dramatized portion. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's funny to think about it as a Puritan New England story. And yet they're so obsessed with like these traditional church holidays like Candlemas. Right. I mean, the Puritans <laughs> didn't even track. celebrate Christmas, man. Yeah. Like they didn't have holidays like that. They had feasts and they had fasts. And they were those were held impromptu based on how they assessed providence to be operating at a given time. There was no set church calendar like that. That was popery, you know? So it's funny yeah. that they have this calendar with Candlemas Eve on it. But it would have been, I think they would have associated following a liturgical calendar with popery and evil. And so it would have made lots of sense to Puritans totally, yeah. that witches would have been, that witches would have been following these kinds of traditions. Marking witches were so high way. church. That's why they dress like monks. Witches yeah. are high church. I mean, like we've already established that I am Episcopalian and I am a witch in this podcast. So yeah.
thesis five, this kind of goes back to our first thesis about feminine characters relating to the past. So like Nan Barlow is like this really enthusiastic student of history. She's like on her way to getting an ill-advised history PhD or whatever. And uh, she's like the, the sort of the bright young pupil and she gets killed. We meet another young lady who is connected to this action, who is the daughter of the village parson who runs the antique shop, Patricia Russell. And again, we have this link to studying the past. Patricia's an antiques dealer. Nan was a history student. For me, there was like, there's something at work here between femininity and the past and femininity, nostalgia, romanticism, but also passivity and victimhood because Patricia has to be saved in a way that Nan was not successfully saved. Patricia is successfully saved by Nan's brother. I was wondering what you what you thought about this connection between femininity and history in this film. Yes, um, I think I first noticed the connection between the characters, of course, when they meet. Um, there's the, But there's this, it gets underlined a little bit when Nan says to Patricia, oh, I'm so glad your light was on. I'm so glad that you were here. Um, yeah, because it's a, yeah. it's a spooky town, right? And she had just come from... I believe it was Patricia's grandfather's um, church with the scene of the empty church. Does this still count as a house of worship? As long as I live. He yes. won't let her in either. I'm like, no. wow, you're, you're not, you're not exactly doing a good job recruiting here either, but whatever. Again, <sighs> again, hashtag mainline Christianity <laughs> blocking the door. <laughs> Come on y'all. All, well, at the same time we're yelling how welcome everyone is, but we won't change anything to make it you know, actually work for people. Um, I smell a heresy trial coming here, Travis. You better be careful. I know. I need to watch out. I need to watch out. Um, but that connection is immediate between them. They're roughly the same age. Um, they, But there's also the distance between the, the newcomer. We don't get many newcomers in these parts. Patricia underlines what pe- people have already been telling her. Um, and it's just like a trope of a horror movie, right? Like, oh, yeah, we don't yeah. get strangers around here. Uh, what be your um, business in Whitewood, stranger? <laughs> exactly. Um, so there's both affinity and separation. Um, but I think that being the granddaughter of the pastor is meant to be some sort of reassurance, but it's also an awkward moment between the two of them because essentially Nan is confiding that creepy old guy who wouldn't even let me go inside the church and blocked my way. And she's like, oh, that was my grandfather. Oops, sorry, my bad. Um but they quickly move into a discussion of the past and Nan talks about what she's here to look for, what she's here to find. Do you have any books like that? Um, normal people go to a library for books that they want to borrow. Um, but our fearless protagonist thinks that the antique shop is the way to go, even though she doesn't have any money to buy the book. She's like, hey, can I borrow this uh, priceless uh, book that you have here on witchcraft. It's one of a kind. These dusty old tomes. No one looks at these. Let me go choose one that I think would be appropriate. Not how research is done. <laughs> you ask the librarian, oh, God, go find me one book, and I'll trust you to pick the right one for me. But that's Though how she we... did, she, when she was talking to Driscoll, she's like, I'm going to go to the city record. She sounded like she was going to yeah. do some really like Actual hardcore, archival boring history. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? It's like, you're going to do this in a weekend, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, write a book. There. I mean, it was enough material. Her idea was definitely a full book monograph. or even a series of books, a monograph easily. Um, but she's going to go for the weekend or, or, you know, for vacation. I think it was maybe a week because she was supposed to go to Cousin Sue's birthday party. I mean, don't forget yes. about Cousin Sue, who's going to be so forget. disappointed. Don't she's sleep like, don't on worry. Cousin Sue. Yeah. I'll be there. I'm going to write my my entire book uh, slash term paper. No, no worries. And I'll just show up at the party. And then she does yeah. it, of course. Um, yeah, but she gets this. She gets this book. She borrows this book. So. I see what you're what you're driving at in terms of uh, nostalgia. Women as being in this film as being associated with the past and a, a kind of, um, on the one hand, a scholarly investigation of it, and on the other hand, a kind of curation of the past, a selection of what's worth remembering about the past, a connection to it also from um, a genealogical connection, right? In who um, Patricia is, she represents a tie to the past to the kind of native culture, et cetera. Yeah, I see it. I buy it. Great idea. Yeah, and thesis and, passes. 
Nan, Nan, but Nan's connection is to like Nan's other family member, like Patricia's family member, living family member until he dies, uh, is this past this blind pastor in in the town of Whitewood. Nan's connection is to a scientist, right. and it's interesting that the, the person whose male relative is a scientist is the one who sacrificed. I think as a way of paying back his insolence in a certain way, for, for paying back Dick's insul- initial insolence as a sort of like way of reading this. Whereas um, Patricia's father is like the valiant part valiant but maybe myopic parson who won't let new people in the door of the mainline denomination church but she survives and that's interesting to me that those that with those connections those genealogies that she survives i think so like i think there's an association between the female characters in the past i think there's also a feminization of of history itself on, on happening on a few levels because like uh christopher lee's character driscoll he is a member of this coven that's ruled by Elizabeth Selwyn. Like he is like her minion, you know? And so in his capacity as like a character and as a history professor, he's basically like an agent for this um, sinister matriarchy. And so I think that's also a way that the past is feminized. And um, I think it's interesting to to make that move to, to sort of sort of like it's not just that women are into history but like history itself is something that is feminine and i that i just find that really striking yeah and gets tied it gets feminized through the trip of witchcraft we talked about witches we're not talking about witchcraft exactly Exactly. it's feminine centric and that is counter-cultural and that is bad and we have to yeah um it going back to your thesis uh about who gets pun who gets killed and who gets saved um, again, for me, that's about punishment. It's about the de- the wages of sin, so to speak. <laughs> um, and this kind of moralizing of every piece of this story. Ultimately, the, the film is telling a tale about witchcraft as a series of sins um, that need to be uh, answered for in some way. I think that's super interesting and jives well with the whole roots in the in the Puritan culture that we've already pointed to. Yeah, and it's like it's also history is feminized because the mystery, the the question of the movie is like, were there witches? What happened in Whitewood? And the answer to history is embodied in the burnt body of this witch. Like the last frame, the last thing you see in the movie is Selwyn's burnt body. Mm-hmm. And so I think like it's not only just like making history like feminized and soft and domestic. It's also like a woman, like the, the you know, that all of human history goes back to Eve in this kind of Puritan, you know, way of reading things. All like the, the original sin, the original sin, the whole meaning of history is this evil matriarch. And I think that, yeah, I think that's the point. Um, speaking of our evil matriarch, we need a little um, cultural moment here with the small town in super interesting to me, the way that, Selwyn, you know, what do you do after you've been, you know, saved by Satan? What is your job? Well, what if you stay in the same town? Because why would you want to stay there? That was the deal. Burn? That was the deal. <laughs> oh, that's she has to she, curse she should have been like, if you let me live, Lucifer, I will move to New York City and sacrifice virgins there. <laughs> yeah, she totally should have. But she condemns herself to this being the small town you know, innkeeper, she keeps insisting to both of the women that, uh, right, to both, uh, to both Nan and Dick, who come, that, oh, her, her hotel is full. And there's just no evidence of that, really. But No then, room except, at the end, yeah. Except we see these dancing scenes, which are the best part for me. Like, what yeah. do you do in a, old-timey hotels were not just a place to sleep. It was also meant to be some kind of, uh, it was a social experience. So you would take meals together. You were expected to eat there um, and even like go to a fireside dance because we have to have the element of fire in there, obviously. Um, but then everyone mysteriously vanishes when you're finally done studying your own, your old tome you got from, you borrowed from the antique dealer and you finally get pretty and you come out and there's no one to dance with. So sad. Yeah. That, that, that part, that part is actually like, I'm, I know I'm always saying this about films, like that part was actually creepy, but that part is creepy because it goes from her like going to like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with the other young people to like, oh, they're all gone. And within five minutes, she's dead. Like yeah. it happens pretty fast. So yeah. Um, also just like another comment on this. It's so funny that 
everyone we we have the impression that the only two normal people in the town are patty who runs the antique shop and her father who runs the abandoned church and i'm like patty why did you decide to come back here to open an antique shop like it's been established that no tourists come here because of the fog on the highway that blocks it or whatever (laughs) Um, so yeah, also interesting. You were saying that why would someone go to an antique shop to get a book? It's funny in German, the word for used bookstore is antiquariat. And oh. so like there is like, there's that connection between like antiques and like old books. Um, so I think that that, that was like the, that, that popped into my mind in any case. So at the end of this film, Patty's about to be sacrificed Bill has been impaled with a knife, struggling to get to them. He had some other misfortunes too. I kind of I relish in the misery that Bill in, is inflicted with in this film. Um, he's driving to Whitewood, and the fiery apparition of Selwyn appears and makes him crash into a tree. And then I forget which witch. It's probably Christopher Lee's throws a knife and like maybe it's maybe it's Selwyn too. Throws a knife at him and like sticks him with the knife as he's trying to save um, yeah. Dick and and Patty. And, uh, but he rallies because as Pastor Russell explained to Dick, the only thing that can stop the witches is the shadow of the cross. And so Nan's boyfriend becomes a disciple of Christ by taking up his cross. He pulls a stone crucifix out of the ground in the graveyard as they're trying to sacrifice Patty and starts like lumbering with the cross, like Jesus on the way to Golgotha. And just, like, the sight of this cross, like, causes the witches to be exploded as if they were hit with a flamethrower. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I was not familiar with the any trope around the shadow of the cross. This was the first time I'd ever heard anything yes. like that. As it's, it's self-powerful. Obviously, the cross itself, used in various ways as a weapon. <laughs> um, the sight of it, um, silver crosses, wooden crosses, all of that, you know, vampires and whatnot. This, this is helpful. The shadow was interesting because you had to have, but I think it was also key for a visual film storytelling because you had to have dawn coming and the coming of the light together with the cross is what's vanquishing these these yeah. folks. Yeah, so that, that ties into the, the, the I, we'll, we'll say the last thesis, thesis six. We have this flamethrower cross. It, it, it points to something that's been consistent across a few films we've, we've talked about. Satanic Rites of Dracula, The Blood on Satan's Claw, our Halloween special from last year. Christianity and its symbols in these films are violent, death-dealing weapons. Remember how Van Helsing, Lorimer Van Helsing, melts down the silver cross in the cast iron skillet to make a bullet? We never said that he shoots that bullet and it misses completely because, anyway, that, that doesn't work. But in any case, other sacred things from christianity than our weapons there the the sort of the thorns and whatever in any case christianity its symbol are violent death-dealing weapons that bring forth that bring order to the world through lethal cleansing this is a set of weapons that local and national patriarchs must turn to and vigorously employ when they are challenged by subversive elements usually embodied as witches or satanists cult members etc so yeah like i don't know it seems pretty clear and probably not controversial, but why is the set of symbols and images from Christianity so consistently used as weapons? And what does it tell us about the kind of political significance of these films? Yeah, I think it's so frustrating to see, um, particularly the cross used this way. I mean, if you think about the cross as, um, as, an instrument of capital punishment in its original context. This is what it's a, it's what you use to execute criminals, people who break the law. Um, but in early Christian theology, it's meant to end um, this kind of uh, cycles of war and violence. There's supposed to be a, a triumph over sin and death in early Christian theology that the cross is meant eventually takes on, though it's not one of the earliest symbols we have of Christianity, side note. It comes out a little bit later. Not coincidentally, perhaps, with the rise of empire and the affiliation of the Roman Empire with Christianity. Um, And that's when we start seeing things like concepts like Christian war, violence, etc., that are justified by Christian theology in a way that feels so... (laughs) feels like such uh, an awful transformation 
of what that can be, how it can be used. Um, yeah, in terms of the kind of cleansing power, um, the to me this feels like perversion, a twisting in the sense of a twisting of what could be a really uh, life-giving meaning of of the cross. This idea that you can use violence to get rid of something of evil is based on the idea that Jesus, you know, the sacrifice of Christ um, expiates sin in some way and one of various ways for humanity. Um, and, but here that turns into it kind of gross uh, cleansing of, of evil humans, um, which is, yeah, so disappointing. In terms of the political moment we're in though, Klaus, when this film comes out, how would you see that um, as related to the various movements for social justice um, and challenging social mores and norms at the time? How specifically do you think that that could be um, interpreted? Yeah, I think something that research I've been doing on the police and Christianity lately has really brought home to me how much in the Cold War and the interwar period, Christianity was seen as the answer, the violent answer to communism. And so the, like the reliance on Christian symbols, like, you know, the cross was like set up was, was like the answer or the antidote to the hammer and sickle. So I think with that in mind, when I see the reliance on Christian symbols and objects in these films as these death dealing weapons, it makes sense in that cold war, like symbolic logic that these are the opposite of godless, materialistic, subversive, pagan power. And so it, it makes a lot of sense to see crosses used this way because that's how not, not every group of Christians, there were left-wing progressive Christians in the Cold War even, and in, especially in the United States in the early 20th century, late 19th century, uh, the Episcopalian Church produced many Christian socialists, different Protestant churches produced Christian socialists. There was a le sort of a left flank to Catholic thought with Catholic worker and Commonweal and, and Dorothy Day and, and things. So like there, it's not as if Christianity is exclusively right wing, but the right wing and even the center will use these symbols as um, counters to and like cleansing agents against uh, the forces of, of anything that would challenge the capitalistic order, basically, whether that's uh, even, you know, Christian black civil rights leaders, um, those are those people are written off as agents of communism. And so I do see a kind of aggressive um, alignment between the violent powers of the state and conservative clerical establishments that being worked out and expressed through the use of Christian symbols in these genre films. I think it's sort of, it's getting at that. And we, you know, it's not a film about communists, but like we have this subversive secret society that's poisoning society. That's like, that's what these conservatives were saying communists and socialists were doing. So like, it's like hard not to see those things aligning, even if it's, even if it's not supposed to be an allegory about that. I'm not even saying that's this, what that's what this movie's really about, but like the resonances are there. Right. Kind of makes me want to read Arthur Miller next, though, as an antidote to that, and to say we can enter the same um, historical time and space and come up with a rather different understanding of uh, when you're looking harder at the persecution side of things, which our professor wants us to do at the beginning of the film. Um, there's a different message, an entirely different message that you can take away. Um, he gets torched too. He, you know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, Professor Alan Driscoll is one of the witches who gets torched in the graveyard by Bill lumbering forward with the cross. He took up his cross and became a disciple of Christ. Yeah. And yeah. So, so yeah, like Bill is like a, a real skeptic in the beginning of the film. In the middle of the film, when he's trying to figure out what happened to Nan, he's looking through the book and the picture of Candlemas Eve with like the witch, like stabbing the innocent girl, like really starts to work on him. He starts to take it seriously at that point. And so like, is, is there an interesting, I'm, I'm not, you know, is there a, is there a character development arc with, with Bill who gives his life to save everyone? Yeah. I found it to be a little bit rushed, but again, our storytelling, uh, we have 78 minutes quickly, here. <laughs> has to happen very quickly in this film. So yeah, it's not, um, 
I think when you connect those dots in that way, it is possible to see what I see as a kind of religious conversion of sorts that he goes through before he's able to be our Christ figure and sacrifice himself uh, heroically, very literally taking up his cross. <laughs> I just can't. It's like Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Yeah, I think, and in the words, and Bill Jesus. absolutely does. But you know, it feels so. Uh, his transition feels so evangelical. Feels so. He's because we have just the barest bones of a conversion. Um, then his, the change is all the more stark because it's not fully explained. It's diagrammed rather than explained. And so we see this dramatic uh, about face, which becomes all the more surprising because of the light storytelling that we get. And to me, that gestures toward this uh, form of Christianity, turning toward the cross, self-sacrifice, that is all about conversion, about having this kind of uh, change of heart that motivates your, uh, your transformation into something, uh, into following Christ. There, I said it. Well, instead of having a road to Damascus experience, he had a road to Whitewood experience. Road to Whitewood. <laughs> when Elizabeth Selwyn's face <laughs> starts flying towards him <laughs> out of the face. Uh, we have not talked about Elizabeth Selwyn uh, as like a masterful performance by who plays that? Let's see. Was it? It's um, not Betta Sinjin. Patricia Jessel. Patricia Jessel. Uh gay icon i don't know if she was already a gay icon but i think she deserves the title because what is she even doing with those eyebrows that expression on her face everything her, her, her from... expression never changes almost like like it, it's really it's really interesting um yeah the, it becomes i would say the the burning scene she's she forced to show a little bit more uh range of emotion but for the rest of the film it's all about this mystery and intrigue that she's holding with these slightly raised eyebrows the entire time just evoking mystery and that she is cooler than you and she's gonna brush her shoulder off um about everything that you are small town girl uh or or uh, boy from the big city or 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 woman from the big city just uh trying to come into her hotel it's she gives zero f's yeah like she, she gives really zero just, f's she is done yeah. with you already and just uh wanted to give her a little shout out um, yeah I, I think that's right i think that's right i think that's right so happy halloween everybody um this was a wonderful romp in the hay uh with city of the dead highly <laughs> recommend that you go enjoy this um for your celebrations of all hallows eve and thanks for listening yeah, thanks. It's 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 our time. It's it's the season for the podcast to really take off and spread its uh, bat-like wings, and so we're happy to have you. And uh, yeah, more coming, more Faust, more everything, probably more movies. Um, I'm trying to get Travis to watch uh, Suspiria by by Argento, so we'll, maybe that would be something. More more witches, maybe. So yeah. more witches. Um, so yeah, see you next time. Doom, doo, doo. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.